It is my privilege to welcome Dr. Martin Bailey as the keynote speaker for our final session of the series. Today, he will explore the epistemological foundations of a truly Indian international thought of India as we revisit with him the forgotten histories of this discipline in the country. Dr. Bailey is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow in the International Relations Department at the London School of Economics and Political Science. His research is centered around the history of South Asian international thought. His book, Taming the Imperial Imagination, Colonial Knowledge, International Relations, and the Anglo-Afghan Encounter, 1808 to 1878, won this year's International Studies Association Francesco Cucciardini Prize for Best Book in Historical International Relations. Most importantly for this audience, though, Dr. Bailey is an alumnus of St. Anthony's. So welcome home, Dr. Bailey. Over to you. Thank you very much, Justin. Thank you um, for that warm introduction. And it's a real pleasure to be here. And thank you to you all for coming as well. Um, yeah, this is something of a homecoming. I was here for two years as an MPhil student um, back when this building didn't exist. Um, so in some ways, it's a bit of a shock um, to see it there. And in fact, um, one of the things that I miss about St. Anthony's uh, was the very international kind of cohort of the students here. Uh, and it, it certainly um, improved my kind of um, uh, welcoming into the discipline and, and my understanding of what international relations was all about. And um, on a social level, as an aside, one of the things that we used to do um, was uh, what we called extreme croquet, uh, which was a kind of an abomination of what you normally understand as croquet um, that could only come through a kind of hybrid sort of syncretic internationalism um, that uh, St Anthony's <laughs> offered and unfortunately I think the new buildings have kind of put paid to that because we used to do it around the hill the best um, but it doesn't yeah there's, there's too much concrete in the way now so that's that's a pity but I suppose it's, it's progress in, in some ways um, so thanks to um, Justna and, and to the INSA for inviting me here today it's um, a real pleasure to be here uh, it, the INSA is, is an interesting organisation and I, I was asking you a little bit about it because in some ways, um, the bringing together of, um, of scholars, of students interested in India um, uh, and, and sort of pursuing academic studies um, follows in a venerable uh, long-standing tradition of promoting India's uh, national interests. And in fact, um, just as early as 1922, uh, the INC received a memorandum on publicity work in America, a new but permanent plan, which stated that India must create and control public opinion in foreign countries at her own expense in order to safeguard the interest of her sons and daughters and to let the world know of India's ideals. And this set up, this led to the setting up of the, of the TILAC, I think it became known as the TILAC tuition scholarships that covered specialisms including political science and economics. So just this little sort of um, nugget, this little history here, showing you the connection between the pursuit of academic studies, uh, including political science, um, as part of a national um, anti-colonial project, as part of pushing forward um, India's interests in the world. And, and there is a link um, between that sort of story and what I'm going to talk to you about today. So the project that I'm going to talk about is, is kind of an overview of some of the research I've been doing as part of this um, British Academy project on, on international thought um, in India. And in a nutshell, uh, it offers a global historical sociology of international thought in India in the first half of the 20th century, from about 1910 to about 1950. 
um, encompassing intellectual, institutional and political movements uh, and their global connections. And, and the project is kind of halfway through at the moment. So this is very much live research. And I'm going to approach um, the talk today it, it, kind of as a seminar. Um, so I'll be really interested to hear um, your sort of take on what I'm doing, some constructive criticism or maybe even deconstructive criticism. Um, and I'm going to be talking a lot about international relations today. So what I mean by this is not just the disciplinary pursuit of IR, uh, as an order my, ordered sort of systematized branch of the social sciences, but also international thought more broadly. So I view these as kind of, um, in this period at least, kind of synonymous. Um, and as a good MPhil IR graduate, I will lay my methodological and theoretical cards on the table uh, at the outset. At the outset. Um, in terms of my approach, my research um, continues a kind of an interest in historical sociology, broadly speaking. So I'm interested in how social kinds, if you like, uh, are formed and move across time and space. So we could talk about concepts like the state, like territoriality, like sovereignty, um, as I explored in some of my previous work. Um, but the, the problem that historical sociology is, is attempting to deal with is the fact that in social science we often reverse engineer these concepts um, when dealing with history. So we look for what we understand as an ideal type of the state, for example, in the past, uh, and we don't contextualize it in its historical setting. But knowledge is also a social kind as well that moves across time and space uh, in, in unexpected ways. And today what I'm going to talk about then is IR knowledge uh, in India um, or amongst Indian scholars and, and some of the institutions they were involved in. And the reason this matters is that knowledge of the international, whether scholarly or otherwise, uh, is significant because international thought and IR more broadly has always professed an ambition uh, to respond to and even to shape patterns of world politics, whether it's been successful or not. So attention to the histories of IR and international thought gives us some insights into the world ordering as well as the world making effects of disciplinary thought. And Indian international thought in the first half of the 20th century is a particularly illuminating case study, if I may be so positivist. It offers a decentered vision of world order, that is, decentered from Europe, from European histories, from European um, uh, philosophies, or, or at least uh, some of them. And as a colonial and soon-to-be post-colonial state, India captures, uh, in some ways, a more deterritorialized notion of political action through anti-colonial solidarities, uh, transnational affiliations, and diaspora influence on national um, agendas. And we also get the intersection of conventional IR agendas with more hierarchical, as opposed to anarchic, un understandings of world order. So this includes status hierarchies of race, class, and gender, which seem to feature quite prominently um, from the Indian perspective on, on what uh, international order and world politics was all about. So recovering Indian international thought is not just about recovering forgotten histories, but also about expanding the horizons of what IR has been uh, and could be. 
as a topic of scholarly inquiry. Okay, so that's my pitch. Um, so I'm going to start with a little bit of disciplinary history before I go into uh, to some of the, um, the material that I'm, that I'm looking at. So Ayah has three creation stories. First, American power, um, the Stanley Hoffman narrative. Uh, the IR is an American social science taking hold in the US due to particular intellectual predispositions, political circumstances, or institutional opportunities. And particularly here, uh, the presence of think tanks, for example, the Rockefeller uh, Foundation and its project on theory um, in, in the 1950s, uh, Cold War projects, uh, the revolving door between politics and academia, and what uh, Ralph Darendorf, since we're at St. Anthony's, termed the applied enlightenment. Uh, the second sort of story of Ayar's creation is the Aberystwyth narrative, that Ayar begins as a solution or a way of understanding the horrors of the First World War, the establishing of the Woodrow Wilson chair at Aberystwyth, E.H. Carr and interwar internationalism and the first great debate between realists and idealists. Um, and forgive me, how many people here are Ayar people? Just out of interest. Okay, so, all right. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll skip over this uh, quickly. Um, and the third narrative which has started to emerge uh, more recently is the empire, the imperial and colonial kind of narrative. So IR was built upon the needs of colonial administration and what was termed at the time race management. So David Long, Brian Schmidt and Robert Vitalis, uh, particularly in this mould. And that, for that reason race was reflected very early in, in IR in the US as the journal of race development which later became foreign affairs. Um, indicates. And others have taken this further, noting the ubiquity of empire and imperialism in the so-called foundational texts of the field, Thucydides, Hobbes, Carr, etc. Now, whichever of these creation stories you find um, convincing, and maybe you don't find any of them convincing, uh, their commonality is their Eurocentrism and the absence of the non-West, except <coughs> as the target of inquiry, uh, or the subject of imperial power, uh, of colonial administration or neo-colonial dominance. And now um, we see a move within the discipline uh, towards some alternatives. The first, uh, the global IR agenda led by Amitavacharya, who pursues an aspiration for greater inclusiveness, grounded in world history, subsuming, not supplanting existing IR theories and methods, integrating the study of regions and regionalism, and recognizing multiple forms of agency. A promising agenda, uh, perhaps, but there are a few issues with this, as scholars have noted. First is this idea of diffusionism, the sort of embedded notion that IR spreads from the West to the non-West in that order. Um, the boundary policing that goes on around this debate, the idea that non-Western IR must achieve certain standards of acceptable knowledge within the discipline. And for me, there's a tension here because one of the uh, one of the reasons for global IR is that um, Western IR is not relevant to the rest of the world. Yet at the same time, global IR demands that non-Western IR must meet some standard of kind of universalism in its theoretical kind of outputs. So th <laughs> there's there's a contradiction right at the heart of the agenda there. And and as part of that, you know, potentially global IR is reinscribing therefore hierarchies of knowledge. Um, the other alternative within international relations, the move towards post-Western or decolonial international relations. So Robbie Shilliam, Pinar Bilgin, George O'Shani, uh, and so on. Um, 
that to some extent has sought to remove the West and its traditions of thought from, from the centre and to provincialise Western IR. Um, again, a very important move, I think, and, and it, it, it answers and addresses some problems. But arguably, both the global IR and the post-Western decolonial IR agenda are both guilty of the same omission, and that is the overlooking of non-Western histories of international thought and its location in the modern field of political science and international relations. So global IR does this in its, in its quest for a modern equivalence to mainstream theorizing uh, in the West, and post-Western and decolonial IR in its attempt to remove the modern and read Western here, uh, remove the modern social sciences from the field of study. So to position this research within this debate, I've got sympathy with both of these agendas, but neither ask the basic historical question, what study of international relations or international thought or political science was there in the non-West <coughs> at this time? Um, what did it look like? And more specifically, what did it, what did it look like in India? Right, so um, a few examples uh, then of what this body of work, work looked like, if I can move towards kind of addressing this question. So my first example is um, the Indian uh, sociologist, uh, political scientist, economist, political theorist, Benoit Kumasaka. Uh, a child prodigy who entered Calcutta University at the age of 13, making us all look um, uh, inadequate. Um, a cosmopolitan who travelled widely, spoke German, French, Italian, English, Czechoslovakian, and his native Bengali. A polymath working in history, political science, political theory, sociology, economics, education, public policy, and more. And in terms of his political science contributions, publishing very early on um, in the Journal of Race Development in America, um, in the American Political Science Review, uh, in Political Science Quarterly and the Journal of International Ethics, as well as the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science. Now, this is significant because we don't normally look to American IR journals for evidence of non-Western international relations, but as early as 1919, in APSR, um, Sarkar published an article called A Hindu Theory of International Relations, long before the theoretical move um, within the discipline later on in the 40s and 50s. In addition, this was all in addition to um, his Indian um, scholarly outputs and journals, including articles in Modern Review and, and um, uh, the vernacular press as well. And these topics included IR theory, world history, economic planning, public finance, Chinese religion, democratic and republican institutionalism, and so on and so forth. So a rich tradition, as Sarkar, a leading example of a scholar whose work made an impact beyond India, and he wasn't the only one. Uh, Tarek Nath Das, um, a, a US-based um, political scientist, an exile actually from India, um, teaching at Columbia University, a PhD from Georgetown, publishing in Political Science Quarterly as well, Journal of Race Development, and the American Journal of Law. The author of numerous books, including Is Japan a Menace to India? and India in World Politics, and a founding member um, of the Gadda movement. Um, also formerly involved in offshoots of the Bengali revolutionary movements um, as well, which is in fact why he was originally, uh, why he originally left um, India and, and never returned. 
Others, including S. Bharmachari, um, the Assistant Secretary to the Social Democratic Party of India and editor of Uganta magazine, one of the leading Bengali underground revolutionary movements. He lectured at Clark University on the 20th anniversary um, on a conference on, Far East, on the Far East on India's independence struggle and published also in the Journal of Race Development, which, as I've mentioned, meant later becomes Foreign Affairs. Um, M. N. Chatterjee, publishing in the Journal of Race Development 2 in 1916 on the world and the next war, turning the corpus of Western and European peace studies, including Kant, uh, Richard Cobden, Norman Angell, against the supposedly civilized warring powers of Europe, and drawing in this article on his experience in the Glasgow slums, highlighting the hypocrisy of European powers unable to care for their own populations whilst colonizing others. So what you, what you see in, in, in many of these works and, and these outputs is a critique of European knowledge, particularly in relation to European understandings of world order or what, it, what international politics was all about. And this, this kind of critique, this counter-knowledge, um, if we can term it that, is a common thread in many of the works operating on at least two levels. The first was the critique of history and historical consciousness. And I think Ben Oisaka gives a really great example of this. Some of his scholarly project was uh, in large part about recovering what he termed international India. In keeping with other, um, in inverted commas, nationalist writers who sought to identify the deep ancient roots of India's place in world history. And this is where um, the, the philosophical kind of histories come in, Cortelia uh, and so on. In Young India magazine, one of the, by the way, one of the um, journal American published student magazines that was supported by the INC, um, Sarkar prefigured the arguments of Kalidas Nag and the Greater India Movement, which he was um, a member of, by pointing to India's long-standing cultural, intellectual, and commercial ties with European and non-European civilizations. India, for Sarkar then, was a product of its location <coughs> of what he called the Grand Whirlpool of human affairs, a product of visvashakti or world forces, as he explained in his 1911 book, The Science of History and the Hope of Mankind. There was also a critique of Eurocentric historiography here too. Um, that is the tendency to present non-European and Oriental histories in a wholly negative light. Uh, he described the main purpose of the futurism of Young Asia, his 1922 book, as, quote, a war against colonialism in politics and against orientalism in science. Orientalism in science. This is 1922, so about 50 years or more before Said. And to quote him, the archaeological, exploratory and translation work done in and about Asia during the 19th century and since under the auspices of Euro-America governments and research societies is indeed marvellous. It is in the interpretation of the unearthed facts and of the data of present-day life, however, that the superstition of the superior race chiefly manifests itself. And you'll see that word race coming up again and again um, in his interpretation of, of what he terms uh, the science or the European science of history. So reading from the Iliad, Sarkar then draws a parody of Occidental methodology, presenting Europeans based on the Iliad, as fractious, immoral, licentious, polygamous, and enthralled to despotic government and the rule of tyrants. 
As he says, this interpretation may be easily condemned on the simple ground that one must not generalize about millenniums of Occidental civilization from single verses of a single poet. But this very truism disappears from the consciousness of your American, this um, uh, neologism that he trades in, of your American scientists, um, while they apply their brains to the interpretation of what they call the heart or soul or spirit of the Orient. So the point here then is to critique the comparative traditions of European scientific forms of knowledge, including history, philosophy, anthropology, and political <coughs> science itself. And this links us to the kind of second level at which this counter-knowledge um, critique is operating on, countering the historical knowledge pervaded by Europe, but also a wider critique of the hierarchies of knowledge embedded in the sciences more broadly, including the social sciences. What, what Sarkar termed the race psychologies of your America, which systematically denigrated the East through an unequal or tendentious comparative method. Um, okay, so those are a couple of individuals. I'm going to move on now to um, thinking about some of the organizations and one organization in particular that hosted um, these traditions of thought. And again, this tradition of counter-knowledge is also evident in, in these professional associations, such as the Indian Political Science Association, established in 1937, holding its first conference in 1938 at Banaras Hindu University. And the presidential address given by Govind Bala Pant, the Prime Minister of United Provinces, critiquing the use of science as part of an imperial project, advocating a new political science in the service of independent India, as he put it, throwing into the Ganges the textbooks on political science to lay the foundation of a real working basis for political realization. The Indian Journal of Political Science followed in 1939 and is still in, in uh, publication to this day, presenting conference proceedings, including papers submitted to the section on international affairs, articles including topics on reform of the League of Nations, problems of international peace, Sino-Japanese relations and the status of the Indian diaspora, as well as Muslim political theories of rebellion. Now, a couple of points from some of the material that's um, evident in, in this particular journal. And the first is uh, syncretism and, and hybridity. So for example, S.V. Uh, Puntambaka, who was at Banaras Hindu University, publishing in 1939 on the role of myths in the development of political thought, identifying realistic, idealistic, and utopian lines of thought, channeling EHKR and European international thought into a more cosmopolitan discourse on political theory, encompassing Christian, Hindu and Islamic myths are, and their modern equivalents. Dev Raj uh, from Christchurch College in Kumpur, writing in 1940 on the problem of international peace, a critique of the world crisis as rooted in the drive for national and imperial prestige, calling for an international administration of the colonies and an almost Gandhian notion of moral rearmament against what he described as the have-nots of Germany and Italy through the voluntary dissolution of empire. Uh, the second thing evident in, in these works as well is, is their global connections and perhaps this um, uh, syncretism and hybridity and outgrowth of that. The travel and careers of these scholars gave them a cosmopolitan worldview and a diversity of intellectual influences. Puntambeka educated here at Oxford, um, returning to Benares. Uh, H.N. Kunzru, a founding member of the Indian Political Science Association, educated at Agra Allahabad and LSE. 
M. Abdul Qadir, who worked on Islamic political thought, trained at the University of London, returning to Hyderabad. And V.S. Ram, who wrote on the reform of League of Nations, educated at Cambridge, Harvard, and returning to Calcutta and Lucknow. Now, I'm, I'm still, as I said at the start, I'm still kind of working through some of this material and thinking about you know, how to place it, how to interpret it. But I think tentatively, um, we can read these works in terms of what Sugata Bose and Chris Manjapra have termed cosmopolitan thought zones. Sites that emerge, as they put it, from the aspiration to build conceptual and linguistic bridges through acts of translation and interpretation, often between highly different and political unequal, politically unequal social communities in order to move towards a perceived shared good. And I think that thinking about it in these terms, thinking about this work in these terms, helps us in a couple of ways. Firstly, it dissolves these works of doubtful particularisms. The idea that these were sort of merely nationalist or socialist internationalist or anti-colonial tracts, categorizations that also carry a kind of questionable teleology. But it also offers an alternative to the diffusionist narrative too, as well, I think. The idea that international thought was actually in, in patterns of relationism rather than patterns of derivativeness or oppositional kind of sets of co-constitution. It contains the possibility of an equal dialogue across differences um, through shared enterprises with different horizons of the possible. So um, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on, on, on that. Um, okay, so moving on now to, uh, I guess, my kind of third example. And these are some photos from the, um, the first IPSA conference. Um, the Indian Council on World Affairs. So the project that I'm working on is not only about scholarly inquiry into international relations. I'm interested too in, in how these works and these individuals and <coughs> scholars uh, overlapped with more practical and utilitarian concerns. So I mentioned Sridharanath Kunzru um, and S.V. Puntambaka, who were both IPSA members, um, along with colleagues such as P.N. Sapru, um, and Aya Pajarai, um, who were all involved in IPSA, the Indian Political Science Association, as well as the establishing of the Indian Council on World Affairs in 1943. So you've got this kind of knowledge community moving between scholarly and more practical concerns. And the ICWA established as an independent organisation in India for the objective study of international affairs, a think tank. A more practical, empirical and utilitarian role modelled on think tanks elsewhere, and indeed in communication with them, as their annual reports show. They were, the ICWA was producing, collating data surveys and policy-relevant research, as well as informing foreign ministries, embassies, and scholars, contributing to UNESCO submissions and hosting the UN Library in India. But it's the thematic emphasis of the journal India Quarterly, which I think gives us some interesting um, insights. Alongside articles on regional and international affairs, a regular section on India and the world, which documented Indian representations at conferences. Um, but arguably more important, a regular section on Indians overseas, documenting diaspora concerns across the colonies in Burma, Malaya, Ceylon, East Africa, South Africa, Mauritius, Guyana, and more. And what you've got here is a documenting of one of the principal concerns that animated early Indian foreign policy, 
one registered by uh, Ramanohar Lahia, the first sec secretary of the INC's foreign department, regularly listed by Nehru as a foreign policy priority for independent India. And this topic of in Indians overseas was a reflection, too, of the intersecting themes of class and race that defined Indian perspectives on world order at this time. Uh, the India, the, the um, British Empire at this point, um, in a sort of desperate and ultimately failed attempt to reform, uh, was establishing new hierarchies, legal hierarchies across the colonies, partly as a way of buying off um, settler European communities as well as independence movements within those colonies. The Indian diaspora, which existed you know, prior to colonialism but was certainly um, uh, motivated by colonial rule in India, a sizable Indian representation in, in across the British Empire, um, was systematically forced down the legal hierarchy, being disenfranchised in terms of its, um, its legal rights, its political representations, and its right to, uh, to own land. So you've got a sort of, a, a, a sort of um, an international topic, an international concern rooted in imperial uh, and colonial politics, which is having a, a demonstrable impact on India's vision um, of, of post-imperial world order very much shaping India's early foreign policy agenda. That is, the status of Indian nationals uh, and the Indian diaspora in the colonies across the world. Um, but more than this, I think, a manifestation um, in this kind of, this policy issue of one interpretation of what, what, we've termed, what was termed Greater India, a post-territorial transnational sense of the international shaping Indian internationalist visions emerging in the shadow of late colonial world order, and also intersecting or in some sort of dialogue with ideas of Greater Britain, as Duncan Bell has written about, Greater Syria, and of course Greater Germany, uh, and, and other ideas um, as well. And so some of these themes, this kind of um, alternative menu of, of internationalist concerns were demonstrated in the Asian Relations Conference of 1947, um, one of the ICWA's greatest achievements. And on, at that uh, conference, um, delegates were asked to prepare briefings on uh, an agenda which included national movements for freedom, racial problems, inter-Asian migration, and the status of women and women's movements, bringing together Asian nations and establishing the foundations for the later Bandung Conference of former colonies, which did so much to energize uh, third world internationalism. And uh, Sharini, I know you've, you've written on this as well in your um, ISA paper. Um, so what we've got here then is, to some extent, I think uh, a movement between scholarly ideas um, and impressions of world order and internationalism, moving into a sort of more of a policy agenda um, as demonstrated by the ICWA, as I've said, not just world-ordering um, forms of knowledge, but also an attempt at world-making um, agendas too. Okay, so um, a few... Uh, oh, sorry, this is uh, just a few more pictures of the ICWA. This is um, Nehru opening the um, ICWA uh, headquarters. Um, this is a Padurai, um, the first director of the ICWA meeting, Indira Gandhi. And this is actually taken from um, JNU's School of International Studies. Um, so one of the things that Padurai also did, he was a very busy person, 
was uh, set up the School of International Studies originally at Delhi University, uh, which later moved to JNU. Um, and this is um, ICWA Saku House today. I don't know if anyone's been there, um, but still very much in operation. So um, a few concluding thoughts, if I can. Um, so the project is not only or even primarily a disciplinary history of Indian IR and international thought. And there are a number of implications, of, as, suggested, as I've suggested, for the way we think about IR as a global project and the way we think about who claims the international. And so a few themes here. First, I want to stress coevalness um, and multiple beginnings. IR and international thought as forged in multiple intersecting projects of a scholarly utilitarian and political character, transmitted through transnational circuits of exchange and operating on a global scale. Figures such as Benai Kumasaka were in dialogue with leading figures of US political and social science. The IPSA established at the same time as equivalent scholarly organizations elsewhere and before the British Committee on Theory uh, or the US Project uh, on Theory. ICWA as part of a global expansion of privately funded learned societies set up to collate and dispense useful knowledge of foreign affairs, a shift in the way in which knowledge was ordered or knowledge on the international was, was ordered. And also part of a global network of international affairs think tanks, including Chatham House, the Carnegie Foundation, Council on Foreign Relations, and so on. So IR then is necessarily global at birth across multiple and connected sites. And, and I think by, by, by uncovering these histories, we're able to see more clearly um, what had previously been viewed as separate, the sort of relationalities between these agendas of rethinking world order tied up in various political projects across various institutional and scholarly sites. And challenging the notion that IR elsewhere should be described either in terms of diffusion, that is the spreading of knowledge from the West to the rest, or difference, the idea that the non-West has its own ideas. Secondly, I think this project also helps us to stretch the concept of the international to draw upon um, Dipesh Chakrabarti. That the international is not just about formal diplomatic exchange, alliance formation, collective action problems and so on. It's also about anti-imperial and anti-colonial solidarities, about race, class and gender and their intersecting um, uh, topics is about futurist visions of world order, about theoretical and historical critique, including counter-knowledge or epistemic resistance to the mainstream. And it's about diaspora concerns and transnational movements of scholars, workers, and independence leaders. In short, a thicker conception of the international, helping us to see things that weren't previously there. And thirdly, I think uh, there's an interesting story to be told here on the, what we, I know this is hopelessly vague, but the political in the forging of Indian international thought, which is not specific to India. For example, the ICWA's close relationship with the Indian uh, National Congress, despite its apparently objective and independent mission statement. The INC sponsorship of research grants for Indian scholars, specifically within political science, as I mentioned right at the start, as a means of forwarding the agendas and interests of independent India. Or we could point to the connections between scholars and revolutionary movements. Um, B.K. Saka, for example,'s brother involved in um, the Gadar movement, 
uh, as well as Tarak Nath Das, who actually hosted Sarkar when he was in India. Um, S. Brahmacharya and Uganta, Sarkar's former student, Narendranath Bhattacharya, also known as M.N. Roy, um, becoming a major sort of communist uh, revolutionary. So the point here is not to outline a conspiracy theory of Indian international relations, but actually to highlight the multiple ways in which politics and IR as a social science intersected. Um, and there are equivalent stories in North America and Europe too, I would argue. Um, there is nothing apolitical about the American social science of international relations. Um, and, and one final thought, which I haven't actually listed here, is uh, what happens to this community of knowledge? Um, why, why is it that we don't have these histories yet already? I don't think there's anything particularly difficult about discovering these. A lot of this material is actually now available quite easily, and some of the archival material, okay, maybe not, but there's something interesting going on in the marginalizing of these histories, which raises questions as to the ongoing hierarchies of knowledge that we have within um, IR. Um, hopefully, uh, I've, I've given you some overview of, of what we can gain from looking at these texts, and um, I welcome your comments and criticisms, and thanks for your time. Thank you.